Friends, good morning. The Lord be with you. My name is Dave Bast, and uh, I've, I'm a member of Fifth. Um, we've been, if you've been with us at all over the past weeks, uh, in a series that I call Seeing God or Visions of God. Three stories from the Old Testament where people actually saw something of the God who can't be seen, the God who is invisible, God the Father. And then three from the New Testament, uh, focusing on the glory of God the Son, his identity as the beloved, the one and only Son of the Father, uh, full, uh, and then his mission in the world as he commissions Saul to become Paul the Apostle and uh, take the gospel out to the whole world, to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews, to turn them from darkness to light, uh, to release them from bondage to Satan, and uh, grant them the power of God, of the living God, and forgiveness. Uh, and then today, we come to the third of those visions, which is a vision of the victory of Jesus, the Son of God. As we do that, I'd, I'd invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we would see you with the eyes of faith, so we turn our eyes upon you uh, to look full in your wonderful face and see your glory and grace. We pray that you would not only open our eyes, but our hearts and minds uh, to receive you and our wills to obey you, and we pray it in your name, amen. So let me begin today by asking you a question. Do you have a picture of Jesus in your mind, a mental picture? What does Jesus look like? Well, if you're of a certain age, you probably think he looks like this. That's a very famous picture, actually. It's called the Head of Christ, was painted by a, an artist named William Salmon uh, in 1940, and it is said to be the most reproduced painting in history. Um, or maybe you think he looks like this. I think this one hung in the church office in 1989 when I came to Fifth. It's got kind of an 80s vibe, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus is kind of a bro uh, these days. <laughs> this is my personal favorite, what's coming next. I kid you not. This is a mosaic from Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, in Constantinople, as it was. For a thousand years, the greatest church in all of Christendom. And this is one of the most famous elements in that church of Christ seated on his throne of judgment, flanked by his mother Mary and John the Baptist, who are pleading mercy for those who appear before him. This is great. <laughs> I love this. This is my, uh, my computer wallpaper on, the, on my... But what does Jesus look like now? I mean, these are all artists' guesses. The question is, if we could see him, 
what would we see? Let's listen as Megan reads the scripture for us. This is the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 19. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's start with the basic journalist questions. Who, what, where? The who is John, um, who describes himself certainly as, uh, simply as your brother, your brother John and partner. Um, tradition says it was the Apostle John, the beloved disciple who wrote the fourth gospel, the three letters that we call John's, and the book of Revelation. Now, we don't have to get into scholarly debate about yes or no. I'm happy to say, yeah, this is John. This is John the Apostle, but now he's a very old man. Most scholars place the book of Revelation sometime in the 90s. John is the last surviving apostle. In the 90s, a Roman emperor named Domitian took control of the empire and launched the first empire-wide wave of persecution against the Christian church. Previous emperors here and there had, um, or local officials, had attacked Christians, but this is now the first big one. And John was caught up in it. He had been the pastor of the church, the leader of the church in Ephesus, and He is now a prisoner because, as he says, uh, for the sake of the word of God and the testimony to Jesus. So 
uh, because of his ministry, because of his role as a leader of the church of Ephesus, John has been arrested and exiled to what was in effect a penal colony, the Isle of Patmos. Patmos, you can still visit it. I did once. It's about a four-hour ferry ride by slow boat off the coast of Turkey. It's not that far out, but it's a small, rocky island, uh, maybe 10 miles by six. There's not a whole lot there, although you can visit the grotto where John had his vision, so we're assured. It's now been turned into kind of a shrine. And while he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, I heard a voice. Now, our John, John Sherrill, of course, is not here this summer. He's been uh, forbidden to enter the building. But, <laughs> but fortunately, he left the Bible decoder ring behind. And I was able to find it in the office. So if you run that phrase, in the spirit on the Lord's day, through the Bible decoder ring, what comes out is, I was worshiping Jesus one Sunday. Just what we're doing. <laughs> and he hears a voice. Now, the interesting thing as you read the book of Revelation is to pay attention to what John hears and what he sees because sometimes those will be complementary, sometimes they will be contrasting. So always ask yourself if you're reading this book, is John hearing this or is he seeing this? He begins by hearing, he hears a voice who gives him a commission. I want you to write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And the seven letters occur in Revelation two and three. We've done a series on those. In fact, we did it during COVID. John and I kind of tag-teamed those seven letters. Um, we recorded them out there in the lobby on John's cell phone. Remember those days? Remember COVID? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so there are the seven churches, and they form a kind of a circular route. Revelation, the whole book is the letter, in effect. It's a circular letter that was intended to be read by all the churches, and those churches represent the whole church and each church. So uh, Revelation is Jesus' letter to us. And then John turns, as he, as he puts it, to see the voice. And what he sees knocks him dead. <laughs> he sees this incredible figure uh, with, you know, snow white hair and a shining, there are echoes of some of our earlier visions. There are echoes of Daniel 7, the son of man is a heavenly figure, not just a human one. There are echoes of the four living creatures with their burnished, polished bronze. There are echoes of the Mount of Transfiguration with the shining face of Jesus. I love, though, the way one commentator describes this vision um, from a commentary on Revelation by a scholar named G.B. Caird. The description of the Son of Man is full of Old Testament phrases which we may track down to their various sources, but to compile such a catalog 
is to unweave the rainbow. John uses his allusions for their evocative and emotive power. His aim is to set the echoes of memory and association ringing. John has seen the risen Christ clothed in all the attributes of deity, and he wishes to call forth from his readers the same response of overwhelming and annihilating wonder which he experienced in his prophetic trance. (laughs) He said a mouthful there. Overwhelming and annihilating, annihilating wonder. And John falls down. But then Jesus lays his hand on John's shoulder. And this is so interesting. Um, I was talking to a friend after last week's sermon, you know, Paul on the Damascus Road, and Paul falls off his horse, and he's lying there in the road, blind, stunned, speechless. And Jesus says to him, Paul, get on your feet. (laughs) And it struck me, that that happens in every one of these vision stories. Every one of them. God doesn't leave people sort of stricken, but he either literally or figuratively says, get up, because I've got something for you to do for me. So we may have And God grant that we have sometimes overwhelming spiritual experiences, experiences of wonder, experiences that make us weep, experiences that that so fill us with love and awe that we hardly know how to describe it. But we don't live there, (laughs) not yet. This is not the time to simply experience God like that because he's got stuff for us to do. So Jesus lays his hand on his and now John switches back to hearing, doesn't he? In, uh, in verse 17, fear not, says Jesus, I am the first and the last and the living one. Which is to say, nothing less than God Almighty God has said in verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. Jesus will echo that at the very end of the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. All that God is, Jesus is. He is the beginning and the end. He is the origin and the destination. And the whole history of the universe falls between his Alpha and his omega. That's who he is. And then, in the middle of that, Jesus says something, something surprising. I died, and I'm alive forevermore. Death entered into the middle of eternal life somehow. Well, we know how. Jesus became human. He took upon himself our nature, our body, a body that was subject to death and to all the ills that assail human flesh. 
and he went all the way to the end. He took the form of a servant, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. In dying and rising again, Jesus won the victory. That was a, a favorite theme in the Eastern Church, incidentally. Um, in the Western Church, we, we tend to understand the cross in terms of Christ's atonement, Christ paying for our sins. Uh, he has fully paid for all my sins, right, with his precious blood. And then in rising, God confirmed that and all his promises of forgiveness and life are true. But in the Eastern Church, they love the power aspect of the cross. Jesus won the victory there. He defeated the powers of evil. He didn't just defeat them, he, he humiliated them. He rubbed their nose in it by rising victorious from the grave. It, it, it's, you, you know, Aslan dies on the stone table. You, you know, most of you know that, I think, right? But there's a deeper magic at work. And in dying, the deep magic is released and the, the witch's hold on the world is broken. That's what happened at the cross. Here's how Lewis, whom I just alluded to in the Narnia stories, here's how he describes it in his book, Miracles. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. He defeated the king of death. So think about that victory with me for a few minutes. First of all, uh, we need to see how decisive it is. I'm Jesus, I died, now I'm alive forevermore, and I hold in my hand the key of death and Hades. Not hell, Hades. So if if you're familiar at all with the Bible, Old Testament in particular, you may know that the Greek word Hades is a translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. So in modern versions often of the Old Testament in particular, they'll use the term Sheol. Um, and what they mean is what we might call the grave. It's the place of the dead. It's the abode of the dead. It's not hell in the sense of punishment. It's a shadowy afterlife that isn't real life at all. And the saints of the Old Testament really had no clear vision of what would come after their death. Many of them had no hope, really, no hope. At best, some rose to the level of believing that God wouldn't somehow abandon his beloved people forever to Sheol, to Hades, to the grave. But very often in the Old Testament, we read 
uh, words that almost sound hopeless. Listen to this, for example, from Psalm 6. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Or this, one of the most remarkable prayers in all the Bible, it's from the end of Psalm 39. Psalm 39 is kind of a meditation on human mortality. Lord, make me to know my end and the measure of my days, what it is. And, and the psalmist has been experiencing trouble and affliction in his life, and he feels the hand of the Lord upon him. And so at the end, he prays this, Lord, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Whoa. Like, God, please stop paying attention to me. I don't want you to look at me anymore. I want you to look at someone else because I've only got a few miserable years and I hope I can smile at least once before I, I die. And that's it. <laughs> and then we come to the New Testament with this glorious sense that Jesus has won for us. And he's won decisively. Listen, he didn't just defeat death in Hades. He kicked in the door and took the keys with him. This is what they pictured it like. I've got a, a couple more visuals for you here. Um, here's one. This is uh, kind of a typical medieval manuscript type view. Notice the keys just to the right of his nail-scarred foot. And what he's doing here, this is what in the Eastern Church they called it anastasis, which means resurrection. In the Western Church they called it the harrowing of hell. So he busts down the doors. Let's look at the next one. This is an, uh, one of my favorites. This is a famous mosaic, again, from a church in Constantinople, um, where Jesus, notice how he's standing on the doors, and there's all kinds of bones underneath his feet, and I think there's a sort of demon there who's trapped under one of those broken doors, and Jesus has, has a handout to Adam and Eve because the Old Testament saints who were languishing in Sheol in that dark realm, that shadowy life that wasn't life, now after his resurrection, he rises and brings them with him into glory. Decisive defeat. An exhilarating victory. That's the, the second thing. It was transformative. So, as opposed to the Old Testament view, in the New Testament, there is just this bubbling over sense of triumph. Read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime, especially the, the conclusion where Paul cries out, oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a secret is what he means. At the trumpet, the dead will be raised 
and we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Victory, exhilarating. I want to read a couple of quotes that I think capture this almost perfectly. They're by two different men who were contemporaries, actually, early 20th century, British. The first is from the philosopher Bertrand Russell, um, one of the most famous atheists of the day. There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Now contrast that with a man named James Denny, a New Testament theologian, who says this, there is not in the New Testament from beginning to end in the record of the original and genuine Christian life a single word of despondency or gloom. It is the most buoyant, exhilarating, and joyful book in the world. The men who write it have indeed all that is hard and painful in the world to encounter, but they are of good courage because Christ has overcome the world, and when the hour of conflict comes, they descend crowned into the arena. All this is due to their faith in Christ's exaltation and in his constant presence with them in the omnipotence of his grace. Exhilarating, transformative, death is defeated. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. One last thing, though, I've got to say. <laughs> Jesus' victory is unfinished as yet. It's incomplete because death remains. The last enemy, Paul calls it, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And at the end of the book of Revelation, if you read through to the end, almost the last thing that happens is that God casts death and Hades into the lake of fire to be done away with forever and ever. But not yet. That's what we mean when we say of the New Testament, it's already but not yet, already but not yet. Notice how John introduced himself. I skipped over this intentionally. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ was on the island called Patmos. Isn't that funny? He doesn't say, your partner in the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, the way we just prayed. No. Partner in the kingdom, yes, Christ is on the throne. Christ is ruling. But now in the tribulation too. In the suffering that life will bring. Some of it just from life. Some of it because of our faith, maybe. You know, I talked about listening and seeing hearing and seeing. One of the clearest illustrations of this comes in Revelation 5, where John is weeping because he's been shown a scroll written 
completely filled, both sides. It's the scroll of God's plans for the world, God's plans for your life. You, you ever ask the question why? It's all in the scroll, all the answers. But John weeps because no one can be found to open the scroll and then he hears a voice that says, don't weep, John, there's someone worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah can open the scroll. That's what he hears. And when he turns to look, as he does here, you know, he hears the voice, turns to look, he sees a lamb that has been slaughtered. And that, in a nutshell, is where we live. In heaven, he's the lion, he's reigning. On earth, he's the lamb, and we are the people of the lamb. And we still experience tribulation. So that's Jesus' victory. Decisive, it's done. Exhilarating, it transforms our approach to death, but incomplete. And meanwhile, Jesus says, get up, John. I, I, I've got something for you to do. Now, two last things, okay, may I? Two last things. Notice where he's standing. When John looks, he sees this awesome figure standing in the midst of seven golden lamps. And he tells us the golden lamps are the seven churches. In his glorified body, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, but in his spirit, he is right here. He is right here. And we are lamps that are to shine with his life and love in a dark and crooked world. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a model of a, an ancient lamp. It's not very big, it's not very bright. It's, it's a dish and they fill it with olive oil and they put a wick in it and they light the wick and it flickers and it smokes. And, but in the darkness, even if it's small, it shines a light. Friends, we're a lamp <laughs> and he's with us. This church, I used to, when I was a kid, we used to drive up to Big Star Lake and um, you know, our family would rent a cottage for a week. You, any of you have been to Big Star Lake? You've driven up M37? When you get north of White Cloud, driving up M37, you'll go past a little white church on the east side of the highway, and they got a big sign, they used to, I don't know if it's still there, it's been a long time, uh, but they had a big sign out front, it's a little Bible church that said, the lighthouse of the north. Isn't that great? How about if we try to be the lighthouse of Eastgate? because people can be drawn to the light. If there's too much heat in the church, if there's too much hot air, they can be repelled, but they can be attracted by light. So notice where he's standing. Here's the other thing. Notice what he's holding. See, in his hand, and I think we should picture it as a sort of necklace of seven stars almost like seven diamonds shining and glowing. And he says, 
the seven stars, incidentally, the seven stars were what the ancient world called the planets. The five planets they could see with the naked eye, they didn't know about the outermost ones, but um, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, plus the sun and moon, those were planets too. The lights that wandered uh, across the heavens against the backdrop of the fixed stars. Jesus is holding this necklace of the seven stars in his hand and he says, the seven stars are the seven angeloi, angels of the churches. And scholars go back and forth. Does he mean that each church has a guardian, guardian angel? Does he mean that the church has a heavenly correspondence? Or does he mean, angelos means messenger. Is he talking about the pastors of the churches or the leaders? I like to think he's talking about all the members of the church because we're all messengers, aren't we? Aren't we called to be messengers? To sparkle? I, I like to imagine what John was thinking when he looked out one day and he's on Patmos and he's thinking, I'm an old, old man. My ministry is finished. I'm exiled. What can I do on a rock in the middle of the sea? And Jesus says, you can write a book. Because friends, no matter how old you are, <laughs> you're never too old to shine. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.